please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, this is your word. And uh, you have given it to us. We have in nature the general revelation to us that, that shouts to us, speaks to us, declares to us, as the psalmist writes, uh, the glory of God. And in the creation, we are to see uh, that you are. And we're to see your wisdom and your power. And yet, you have uh, condescended to us to write to us in this book uh, the particulars about who you are and about who we are. And we're grateful for that. You have sent your Lord Jesus as the perfect manifestation of your word to us. And in him we see all that is true. And so we realize that as we open this book together, that we are a special people. And I pray that uh, we never, never, ever uh, miss the opportunity to open this book together. And that we never take it for granted. But we always realize the great gift it is to us. So help us now, please, I pray. As these words are read, that we may hear your voice, that we may know that this is you speaking to us and that it would have its perfect work in us. You say that your word will never return to us void. And so we pray that on this day that your word would work grace in us and a deep understanding and a great love for you. And this we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Turn please to Isaiah. And chapter 40, I want to begin reading verse, with verse, uh, verse 12 and then uh, read through the end of the chapter. So Isaiah and chapter 40, please. <clears throat> verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who's measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. 
and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded uh, by my God. Have you not heard? I'm sorry. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And then together we say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Two questions that fall out of this passage. Two questions. They're basic, and by that I don't mean to be dismissive by saying they're basic. They're basic because they're foundational ones. They're ones that I think we as human beings come back to all the time. Especially when we think of our relationship with God. We think of these two questions, sometimes consciously, sometimes not, but they're, they're there in us. First, is God really able? Can he really do what he's promised to do? As we were thinking about the, very, the nature, the very character of God, he's made promises to us. He's, he's made promises. We've been working our way through the various promises, even in this passage in Isaiah, that, that, that it's interesting. I have no particular historical markers in this passage because Isaiah, it appears, is given a word that, that looks from him, but all the way out, you see, including us and beyond those who will come after us and even as the Lord returns. But, 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 but we see these great promises about God and what he's going to do and the question is can he really do it we we look at the world in which we live and we wonder we see the tragedies we see the killings whether they're on the streets whether in the malls or in the train stations or in the schools or in the churches or wherever they are and we see them and we wonder is god really there is he really able Claims to be sovereign and powerful and good and all of that. But why? Why is all of this happening? We see about the sexual abuse and about the human trafficking, children, women and the wars and the difficulties and the tornadoes and the hurricanes and the floods. And and we wonder, is he really able? Can he really do anything about this? And can he really um, fulfill all these Lofty, magnificent promises that he's given to us about salvation. And then there's a second question that comes. And that second question is, does he really care? Particularly about me. Uh, You go through difficulties in the context of life and it's very easy to swing from, oh yes, God is with me, to oh yes, where is God? In the midst of the grief and the sorrows and the hardness of life 
And those questions are just there for us, and we grapple with them continuously, it seems. Is he really able? Does he really care? Is he able? Does he really care? Can he really do this? Does he really love me? And these two questions, I think, are embedded in the midst of this, certainly in the minds of of, of those who would read Isaiah, his first readers, and then on for some generations after that, because you remember that, (coughs) excuse me, in chapter 39, Isaiah makes this claim, uh, this prophecy, if you will, that the people will be exiled, that another nation will come and, 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 and their city uh, of Jerusalem and will be destroyed and the temple will be destroyed and, and, and devastation will come, death, and the best and the brightest will be exiled to another place, another nation will take them away and try to incorporate them into this new nation's culture and destroy the Israelites. And so so this is going to happen. And they wonder, well, what, what's God going to do? Can he really fulfill the promises that he's made? He's, he made these promises that, 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 that our warfare with him and our warfare with each other is going to end. He's made the promise that our iniquities will be pardoned. He's made the promise that we'll receive a double blessing as this atonement for our sins comes. He made the very promise that he himself would come and his glory would be Seen. He made the promise that he would come in great might and power and destroy his and our enemies. He made the promise that he would come in gentleness and tenderness and gather his people to himself. But will he and does he really care? You can only imagine in the midst of the exile the, the kinds of insecurity that the Israelites would have. Wait a minute, here we are. Has God forgotten us? Does he really does he really care? Can he really deliver us from this situation? I mean, look at our history. Our history is that, that we've been unfaithful. And, and when we're unfaithful, God disciplines us. And then ultimately we repent and he comes back to us. But how much longer can that take? How many, how many more times can he do that? Can he, can he really come for us uh, given the sinfulness uh, that we exhibit day after day, generation after generation? And so this passage is... Um, for them and for us. This is one of the remarkable passages, I have to tell you, in all the scripture. I mean, they're all remarkable. It's rather condescending to say one is more remarkable than the other. But when I read this, every time I read through it, it just takes my breath away. I get the feeling, in a sense, that I'm reading like the last chapters of Job. You remember that last uh, bit of Job where God reveals himself. And he says, this is who I am. Who are you? And, and he comes to them in this very same way. This is who I am. If I were going to title, and I don't title sermons because I'm not that good at it. Uh, you know, in those standardized tests where you have to read, you know, that paragraph and give it a title, I'm sure that's always was bad for me, you know. Um, But if I were to title it, it would be something like the rationale for faith in God. That would be the positive title. The negative title would be something to the effect of the irrationality of unbelief. As God lays this out, just walk through this with me. It begins with this question, and there's questions throughout, as I'm sure you noticed as I was reading. But in verse 12, it begins with this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands uh, and marked out the heavens with a span? Um, uh, You just get this sense where God is saying that, that, that I made this, and I'm the only one who can do this. 
And it was all made to my specifications. All these are, are, are sort of measurement and exactness kinds of word to measure and to mark off and to enclose and to, to weigh. Yeah, everything uh, was made, God says, to my uh, specifications. And, and you just think, I don't know, I'm a Florida kid, so when I'm at the beach and I look out, I'm, it literally uh, takes my breath away when I stand on the beach and I look just out. And all you see is water and horizon. That's all you see. And it just, it just, it's almost scary. It's so immense. And there you stand and you think of God measuring the seas in the hollow of his hand. <laughs> his hands are so big. And then he just puts the ocean and it just like sits in the middle of the palm of it. And we know this is metaphorical. God doesn't have hands. But, but when we get the point that he's saying to us, this is who I am. I want you to know who I am. If, if you're wondering if I can, I want you to think about for a minute who I am. Uh, you see, the natural world is to amaze us. We're, we're to be, I'm envious of scientists. I'm envious of scientists because I'm not a scientist uh, at all. But, but I'm envious of those who can study Creation, because you have a front row seat to the glory of God. And I think, oh, I wish I were like you. I wish I could do that. I wish I could understand all those things that you say to me. And I love you, scientists, because every time I say this, you sit down with me and you tell me stuff. And I just glaze over. <laughs> right? it's, I, I appreciate it a lot. And I love your enthusiasm. But, but I'm not getting it. But, but I, I wish I could. I really do, because I envy you, because there you are with a front row seat to the glory of God. We're to marvel at God's creation. And, and so God is saying to us, just, just, wanna, just in the very first bit of this poem, as it's coming to us, this part of it, he's saying to us, I want you to see who I am. And when you wonder if I'm able, just think about for a minute who I am. In, in fact, this is the very ground of our lives Indeed, the very heart of our prayers, just by one illustration in Acts in chapter 4, as the early apostles were seeing persecution and, 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 and all of that in Acts chapter 4, in verse 23, when uh, Peter and John were released from their imprisonment in the very beginning, as the gospel began to spread, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and then who through your, the mouth of your father David, uh, you, your servant, you spoke by the Holy Spirit, and so forth. And so they make their request that God would give them boldness on the basis of the fact that he had created everything. And if he had created everything, then they needn't fear their enemies because God was with them. And so they needn't fear their enemies. It's the great line in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? I mean, he, the one who put the oceans in the palm of his hand, the one who spread out his fingers and measured the mountains throughout the course of the world, you see, that God, he says, that God. And then verse 12, uh, verse 13 and 14, about his wisdom, who measured the spirits of the Lord. You see, he says, he says, I measured everything else. Who's measured me? Right? Who's the specs for me? 
He's the one who said, this is the way God is, and I know this is the way God is, and I'm going to... Who's who's up for that? He says, who's measured the Spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, showed him the very way of understanding? He says, listen, I didn't consult anybody when I made this. I didn't go to a firm that was entitled Universe Architects, right? And I went to them and said, hey, I want to make a universe. How can I do that? You know, what are the best designs? Who's your best people? Can you really help me? When, when I laid out what history is to be, I didn't consult anybody. I didn't need anybody, any, any wisdom. You see, I'm not the creation. I'm different than creation. I'm unique from creation. I have, God says, no needs at all. The creation needs me. I don't need the creation. I'm different. I'm God, you see. I didn't consult anybody. It's from my own understanding, from my own wisdom. No one taught me. Or when I meet people, human beings, when I meet people and, uh, and, 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 and begin to talk and I begin to realize the knowledge that they have, often a question in my own mind is, where did they learn this? Who taught them? Who was their mentor? Uh, what school did they go to? Because I know they got it from somebody. They learned it from someone. The older I get, the more I read people. I go, oh, I know where that, oh, I can trace that back to the 17th century. Oh, I can trace that back to, you know, we learn from each other, you see. God doesn't learn from anyone. And we marvel at that. How can that really be? He doesn't learn from anyone. All of this, this history, this salvation. As we come to this time of Christmas and we celebrate the incarnation, all of this was God's idea. He didn't get it from anybody that that his son would be born through a woman named Mary who hadn't had relations with a man. And he would be born in the humility of this stable. And he would grow up. And he would live a perfect life and he would give himself. And he would die on a cross. And the glory of the Lord would be seen in that death and in his resurrection and in his ascension and he would rule and reign and the spirit would be given and the spirit would be given in such a way that life would come to the people of God and people would bear witness of this by way of word and spirit and others would come to know him and a day would come when he would return and the earth would be renewed that's all of God. Nobody, nobody told him that. It wasn't a conference he had with other people. It was all from within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then verse 15, he lays it out again for us. He says, listen, I'm, 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 I'm preeminent over this creation. I dominate this creation. This creation uh, compared to me is nothing. He, he talks about the nations of the world, you know, our, our best and our brightest, our, our, the, the, sort of the, the, the sort of the, that houses our intellect and our, our economic prowess and our political strength and our, our societies and all of that. These nations, um, he says, they're like a drop from a bucket. Meaning if you have a really big bucket full of water and a drop falls out of it and you're carrying it and it's really heavy, do you notice that that drop is gone? No. If there's dust on a scale... Do, do, you, do you wipe it off? Well, not if you're a man, anyway. Uh, probably in trouble for that. 
You know, why not? Because it doesn't matter. It's just dust. It doesn't measure. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not part of the, what's going to show up on the weight of it. it. It just doesn't mean anything. And he says, that's what the nations are like to me. They're nothing. And by that, he's not saying they're not valuable because he made them and he made people and all that. He's saying, but compared to me, the strength and the intellect, the power, it's nothing at all. They're not like me at all. I don't need them for anything that I need to be done. I, I, I just, I don't need them. And he says, if, even if you wanted to worship me, even if you wanted to gather everything on the earth and worship me, so you took all the trees from the forest of Lebanon and you created a fire for the altar and you took all of the animals on the face of the earth that ever were and you'd sacrifice them, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't even scratch the surface for how holy I am and the worship that I deserve. It just can't happen. Then verse 18, he starts really now to be sarcastic. And to poke fun at them. He says, to whom then will you liken God? An idol? A craftsman crafts it and the goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for its silver chains. And he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. And he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. He says, really? And we say, we don't do that. Really? We don't set things up as God. That we center our lives around that define us other than God, that direct us other than God. We do it all the time. God says, listen, the beauty of an idol is no more than the beauty of the nature I created. The durability of the idol that you make is no greater than the durability that comes from nature and your craftsmanship. That's nothing at all, you see. The power of this idol that you've made is no more than that it has in nature. Uh, Really? You're going to compare that to me? So whether it's a replacement of God or a representation of God, he says, that's ridiculous. Right? That's why in the commandments, the first two deal with that right away. Right off the bat, God says, don't have any other gods before me. No replacements. And don't make any graven images of me. Right? No representations of me. Because the replacement is ridiculous. And, and, and the representation is always flawed. It can never, can never capture who God is. The only image of the invisible God is, well, since we didn't have Sunday school today, you know the answer, Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the only one. He's come to us. And, and he says, no, if you want an image of who I am, a perfect representation of who I am, look at Jesus. But, but you can't capture Jesus in a painting, in a picture, in a sculpture. You just can't. Oh, you could picture some kind of outward form. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I, I never went to see... Um, what was that movie that, oh, this will be great. What was that movie that What's-His-Name did um, <laughs> about, about Jesus, you know? Uh, the Passion of the Christ, thank you. I never went to see that for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is because, and if you went to see it, that's fine. It was really moving to you. I'm grateful and all that, so this isn't a critical criticism. It's just for me. 
Because I knew that there's no way that you can capture what Jesus did on film. So if you saw it and liked it, fine, that's great. But, 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 but trust me, what you saw happen on film didn't come close to what took place when Jesus died. When he made propitiation for our sins. No matter what the actor did, and I'm sure he did a great job, it, it, it didn't do it. Whatever it was, he didn't do it. Can't. Who can compare? And then Isaiah gets really, really personal in verse 21. Not that this hasn't been. But he says, do you not know? In in other words, for the non-Israelite and even for the Israelite, the, the, the book of nature is sufficient to enable us to see the wisdom and power of God. As Paul writes in Romans 1, it leaves us all human beings without excuse. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, you see? And so, so every human being, every century, every place is without excuse because of the book of nature, because of this, what we call general revelation, because of, of what nature shows to be true about God. <clears throat> but the Israelites were different. The Israelites were different. They didn't only have the book of nature, but they had the Pentateuch. They did not only have the book of nature, but they had the writings. They did not only have the book of nature, but they had the, the prophets, you see, and, and we even more so. And so he says, have you not known? Did you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth, you see? That's sort of like what anybody would say to someone who grew up in the church. All human beings are without excuse because of nature, but, but you were baptized. You went to Sunday school, right? You glued macaroni on a piece of paper in the shape of a cross and spray painted it, right? I mean, you memorized verses. You went to VBS. You went to worship. You sang songs. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth his emptiness. You see, he says, says, we should know this. This is the God-centered view of life. God is pictured. God is shown to us as he sits in his heavenly throne and rules and reigns over everything. And compared to him, everything really is like grasshoppers. And all he has to do is blow on them and they're gone. I don't know. I was a sadistic kid and like most little boys. And I would, I would love to pick up grasshoppers and move them from one place to another. Uh, just because I could. And I would think I'm changing the whole course of this grasshopper's life. He was on the playground, you see, and now he's in my neighbor's house. Wow. You know? Well, God says he's not as sadistic as I. God says that he's, that's the way the nations are to him. He can move them around as he wants to. 
If he wants to snuff them out, he can. He isn't saying, I'm just a nasty God. He's saying, but understand who I am in comparison to everything else. Can you only imagine what comfort this should bring to them when they're in exile and the Babylonians are, are holding them in this captivity and trying to change their whole course of their lives. And God reminds them, you know, the Babylonians are just like grasshoppers to me. Really? The North Koreans or the United States of America. Grasshoppers, you see. They were enamored with earthly power. That's part of the nature of human beings. We're enamored with ourselves and power. They kept making alliances and every time they did it was destructive. We're enamored with earthly power. We fear powers and we want to be powerful. But God says, wait a minute. Haven't you, of all people, known, heard? Hasn't it always been this way from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that I'm enthroned? I'm the one that matters. Don't be afraid. Don't be proud. Don't trust in yourselves or anyone else. Trust in me. He brings princes to nothings. He makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem been taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. And then he says, all right, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Now, that's one of those little expressions. It's sort of like when you're with your kids and they ask you something and you're not quite sure they're taking you as serious as they ought to. And so you say, well, this is what you should do, says your father. Right? Uh, this is what you should do. This is, says the Holy One. I'm holy. Everything I do is flawless. Everything I do is perfect. Everything I do is exactly the way it ought to be done. I'm the Holy One. I'm the other one. You see, I'm the one who everything is perfect. About me. So he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. In other words, he says, go outside, not today perhaps, but go outside on a nice day and lay down on the grass and, and look up and realize those stars are like pets to me. I have names for all of them. And just before they show themselves, I called them out. Hey, come on, come on, come on, come on. Every single one of them. And you go, well, that's, Fanciful, yes, of course, it's metaphorical, it's, it's, it's a figure of speech, but we get the point. He says, that's what I'm like to the stars. They're mine. Then verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, this is the question. God, do you really care? God's saying, well, say, given who I am, how can you say I can't do this? And why would you say, I don't, I don't care about you, don't you understand? One uh, commentator puts it like this. He says, these questions expose the frailty of faith and also the absurdity of faithlessness. It's as if the questioner says, on my way on the earth has become so tangled that the Lord has lost sight of me. And there's no pleading my cause before him, um, for he'll simply dismiss it. Out of hand. You ever feel that way? And Isaiah is saying, why? Why would you feel that way? Notice who God really is. John Knox, 
Scottish reformer, put it like this. He said, by what means Satan first drew mankind from the obedience of God, the scripture bears witness. So he's saying, scripture teaches us the means by which Satan first drew us away from God. He goes on to say, namely, by pouring into their hearts that poison that God doesn't love them. God doesn't love them, that his word isn't good and that God would lead them astray. And though by telling them you can eat of every tree but this one, he was keeping from them happiness and joy. He didn't really love them, didn't really have their best interests in mind. And that's this temptation for human beings. We say it to each other in various ways over and over again. I don't know that God really loves me. I don't know that God really, if God really loved me, why is this happening? If God really loved me, why am I going through this grief? If God really loved me, why don't I have this job? If God really loved me, why, when I share the gospel with my children or my, or my friends, why don't they believe? I mean, if God really loved me, why would all these things be happening? And so Isaiah goes on. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? That the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint nor grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, he's everlasting. There's never a time when he hasn't been. He's eternal. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. There isn't any place on the earth or anywhere else where God isn't and hasn't been. He doesn't grow faint or weary. That is, he never tires out. And he's perfect wisdom. And here's the point of all that, verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Of all the people in the world, the Israelites should have known that. Don't they remember Joshua when he was in battle with the Midianites? And don't they remember that, that he was, when he was losing, that, that Aaron and her, the two priests, would go beside Moses and prop up Moses' arms? And when Moses' arms would be propped up in prayer, then Joshua would receive strength and, and, and the battle would go his way. And so don't they realize that though Joshua was outmanned by the Midianites, don't they realize that God gave him strength? Don't they remember Gideon? We started out with 22,000, we went to 10,000, and finally just to 300, and yet he defeated, um, I'm sorry, it was Joshua and the Amalekites, it was Gideon and the Midianites, get my ites mixed up from time to time, and he defeated the, the Midianites. Don't they remember David and Goliath? Don't they remember Jehoshaphat? When he looked up on every corner of the globe, there was an enemy and he was standing there with nothing as an army. And so God said, sing. And they sang. And the enemies defeated each other. Don't they remember of all the people to give strength, you see, to those who are weak? Don't you remember? Don't you remember? Don't I remember? He gives power to the faint and to him who has no mighty increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. That is, the ones who have the natural energy, they'll wear out eventually. Young men, those who are trained and physically fit, they'll fall exhausted. But here's something. Those who wait for the Lord, that is, hope in the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. That is to say, we need to wait upon the Lord. What does it mean to wait upon him? It means to trust in him and not trust in ourselves. James writes the 
In the New Testament, verse 7 of chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earthly and the late Uh, the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the Lord's coming. Uh, We know farmers, when they wait, they're not idle. But James' point is the farmer waits, trusting. He knows what God has promised to bring in terms of rains. And he knows unless God brings it, nothing he does will be helpful. And so he waits. He waits patiently. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews in chapter 6 and verse 11. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How do we inherit these promises of God? How do we wait? Faith and patience. He tells us. It's going to take time. Trust me. You may not understand today, but God understands today. He knows where he's taking you and his people. And he says, trust me. Wait. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, of course, he speaks of those who waited. And he speaks of those like Abraham and others. Verse 13, he says, they all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and agreed from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It was true for Abraham. It was true for Jacob. It was true for Moses. It's true for us. He says, wait. He says, trust me. When does this strength come? Well, it comes when we feel weak. When should we feel weak? Always. Always. We should feel weak in this sense of recognizing that we can't, but God can. Recognizing that God is able and we are not. Recognize that he is the Lord and the Savior and we aren't. And thus we should look to him always for strength. There's sometimes when we feel that weakness just because of the circumstances of life or whatever situation we may find ourselves in. And we go to him, but those times are simply to be reminders of all the time. That we never can, he always can. And he always will strengthen and enable us in every circumstance and through every situation. And he comes to us and he says, have you not known And have you not heard that on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, this he gave to his disciples. He broke and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And what are we remembering? We're remembering that God is the creator of the ends of the earth. That no one has instructed him. That this plan and implementation of our salvation and our redemption is his. And just as he made everything that is, he promises to remake all that is in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, trust me. He says, wait. And you say, but but, 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 but a week. And he says, I know. (laughs) I'll strengthen you. I don't feel like I can persevere. I'll enable you to persevere. Trust me. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. It's amazing to us that we have all that we do and we're grateful. And I do pray now that you would enable us each to have faith in him, to trust him. And to know, God, that uh, you have given him for us, given Jesus for us, that we might live. So please now I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and you would set it apart in such a way that we would know that we're in the very presence of this one Jesus who has come. And that knowing that we're in the very presence of this one Jesus who has come, know that God, you would increase our faith. That we would know, for we have heard, that you are the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. That you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has come and given himself for us. And by trusting in him, you will strengthen us. And in strengthening us, you will enable us to persevere. And enabling us to persevere, you will bring glory to yourself. This we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.